Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Fathers, we've heard the words or heard the tune with words that follow. Our faith looks up to Thee, Thou Lamb of Calvary. Lord, as we've remembered Your sacrifice for us at Calvary, tangibly through the elements that You gave in the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Father, we thank You for these reminders of reality. Father, not a means of making what isn't, simply a reminder of what is, such that it empowers us to live as those you have made us already in Christ, not making who we are in Christ more, simply drawing sharper lines around what already is, so that as the world looks to us, we are more and more reflecting the image of Jesus. Father, thank you for these reminders. Thank you for your word now as we turn to it, which has guided all that we've done to this point in our service. Lord, your word has been, as David said, the lamp to our feet, a guide for our paths. It has kept us, we pray, from error. And Lord, now as we turn to study this word specific, I pray that you would protect us, Father, from error. Lord, let what we hear be what you would want us to hear. Lord, if there's something that I say that leads us astray, I pray that you would strike it from our minds. Father, let us to experience truth. For your word is truth. And you, Christ, are the way, the truth, and the life. And this is what we desire. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles... Would you open them with me to James's letter, chapter 1? James, chapter 1 in your Bible's New Testament. And this morning, we return to our study of this book written by our Lord's brother, we believe, to the church scattered around the world for the purpose of exhorting believers in their faith. For James, as we've seen together and as the title of our sermon series proclaims, faith works. For James, faith worked. In other words, and as we're going to see again together today, genuine faith or or true religion is not mere mental assent to a body of doctrines, nor is it the performance of good works out of obligation to the Scriptures. Rather, as James makes clear, genuine faith is reflected by a spirit-birthed dependence upon God that's demonstrated by obedience to God, which is all directed by the Word of God. So true religion is, is, is marked by this dynamic relationship which exists between the outward and the inward aspects of the human being. And it's this outward inner interaction that I want us to see together today as it's addressed by our author James. And so with that said, would you follow along in your Bibles as I read our text for this morning, James chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 19. James 1 Verse 19, my dear brothers, sisters, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he's heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. May God bless the public reading of his word. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, last week, Cotter did a wonderful job in my absence, and I'm so thankful for him as he proclaimed the gospel to you and kept us moving forward in our understanding of who God is and all that he has for us. But if you were with us two weeks ago, then you may remember how in our examination of this text, we established that there's this spectrum of belief exhibited in our world regarding religion. On the one hand, you have those who hold that belief is all you need, that faith in the Almighty and for Christians, that almighty or unknown is Scripture's God and His gracious work of saving us through faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It's the sum total of religion. It's just belief in this almighty being that is out there. Metaphorically speaking and in Christian terms, Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and He's knocking. And all you have to do is open up and let Him in and you'll be good for life. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have those who believe that you've got to work Till Jesus comes if you hope to be gathered home. And so for these folks, the way that you dress, the things that you drink, the kind of girl you date, all determines your life's eternal destiny. And it, it isn't what, so much, what you believe so much as matters as how you behave. And as we've noted, you know, for each of us, there's this, we all adhere to a view of religion that falls somewhere on this spectrum. Now, for some, our positions are the result of, of biblical study, hours and hours of personal, personal scrutiny over the scriptures along with prayer. Others just share those beliefs as passed to them from their parents, while still others, they have no idea why they hold to the beliefs and views that they have. And in fact, if you were to ask them specifically why they hold to those that they do, they'd probably tell you that they don't have a position. And yet, their lives would reveal otherwise. And friends, whether we had admit it or not, we all believe something about God. We all believe something about God, and we all have a, a thought or a position on how we live in relationship with Him or and may be made right with Him. That's religion. Sadly, many in our world hold a beliefs that are not drawn from God's Word, and therefore their opinions are simply that. They're opinions, and as such, they are not worthy of being taught authoritatively or axiomatically. James recognized the danger of such beliefs, reflecting this polarity as we've just described. And so he addressed this in his readers by warning them that in true religion, hearing leads to doing. Hearing always leads to doing, our first point this morning. And in verse 22, we see this where James declares, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Don't merely listen and deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, for those of us who are familiar with, with church lingo, if you've been raised in the church, you, you speak churchese, if you will, this sort of exhortation, it sounds good, doesn't it? And it appeal, appears to be fairly straightforward. For We use this kind of expression all the time. We speak about the word 
about the good book, the scriptures, all the time. And so it's such a call as is issued here by James. It's much like the question, I believe, do you want to make that a meal after you've just bought a chicken sandwich at, say, Chick-fil-A? Or you want to supersize that if you've been to McDonald's lately, right? I mean, it's a statement using phrases that we've all heard before, which clearly communicate. However, I would, I would argue this morning, there's some who are far more like I was when I first went to college, having grown up in a country where we didn't have institutions, if you will, like McDonald's. My brothers and I loved McDonald's. And interestingly enough, we couldn't figure out why my grandparents, who lived surrounded by like 10 of these things, never went, except when their grandsons came and were super excited about eating at McDonald's. They never went. And I, I remember the first time, one of the very first times we went, we ordered this meal. And I was asked a host of the standard McDonald's questions. You want fries with that? You want a drink? Is that going to be all? These questions I know we've all heard before because all of us have darkened the doors of a McDonald's at some point in your life, otherwise you're not an American. You've all been there at one point or time. And, and yet, we've heard these things and they all make sense, right? However, I would imagine there's more than just myself in the room who can attest to this. I was so confused. I was so confused when we ordered this meal because every meal I'd ordered growing up in the country in which I grew up, you didn't get to pick and choose. You weren't asked for these kinds of options. You know, I'm embarrassed for myself now, but back then when I was given an empty cup and asked, I, I, I asked, didn't I order a Dr. Pepper? I thought I asked for a Dr. Pepper. Now, you have to know I did it in a very polite manner because that's just the culture in which I was raised. But manners couldn't mask the clerk's confusion when I handed him his cup back and said, uh, there's no Dr. Pepper in this container. Isn't I, aren't I saying, you know, and then, you know, I'm sure and I've, I've just chosen to forget their reaction to my enthusiasm when directed to a machine where I could get whatever drink I wanted as much as I wanted. I could even get ice out of the same machine. I had always been just handed the cup with all the drink inside. It was unbelievable for me. And so such statements as this, as we were going to read here in James, we can so easily take them for granted, assuming we all know what we're talking about. And so for this reason, I want to make sure that we grasp together what James is saying here. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And I would hope that that warning to not only listen but do is clear. And so I want us to focus specifically on the word. The word. What word is James talking about? Is he talking about this book? Is he talking about the Bible or, or specifically the message of James's letter? Is he talking about his own letter or his own command to be quick to listen, slow to anger that he offered us back in verse 19? And I believe the answer is both yes and no. And so let, and let me explain. If you want to look back with me for just a moment to verse 18, there in chapter 1, verse 18, because here James says this, he, and that's God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth. And so this word is the same word that we see referenced there in verse 21 where James says, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word, there it is, planted in you which can save you. And so for our purposes in light of our text, we can note that this word is truth. This word is first and foremost truth and not just any truth. This word is God's truth that brings new life. It's also salvific. This word is salvific. It saves. Specifically, it saves us from error, James says, moral failure, and all evil. So this is no less than a spiritual salvation. So I believe that the word James is referencing here, verse 22, is the gospel. 
the gospel, the true message of God's saving grace in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And I believe the apostle Paul provides further attestation to this understanding as he uses this very same word when he writes to the church in Ephesus. Chapter 1, verse 13, if you want to make a note and go look this up later. He writes there, and you, church, were also included in Christ, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth. And then he adds, the gospel of your salvation. He does it again in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5. The faith, he writes, and love that spring from the hope that's stored up for you in heaven and that you've already heard of in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. And so is this word of James referring to the Bible, to his letter, to his exhortations that are contained therein? Yes, Absolutely yes, because this book is God's word, and it's, it's a love story of God and his creation. And so James's letter is a part of that story as it explains how we come to be in it and what we're to do as we live as a part of this. But is this word that James is speaking of limited, if you will, to, the, say, the rules, the, the Decalogue of the Old Testament? And is it only James's practical warnings that he gives to us against anger? And the answer is absolutely not. But church... Understanding this word here to be the gospel has huge implications for us when we return to verse 22. Because it means there that we are to enact what? The gospel. If you were to switch those words out, we're to enact the gospel. We aren't simply to tack up this list of do's and don'ts and then slavishly seek to obey them in order to keep from being deceived, which is what James is warning against, the deception Rather, we're to live out the gospel. Now, I would imagine that there might be some of us this morning who are thinking, but I thought the gospel was a story. I thought it was a story about Jesus. So how does one live a story? It's a good question. And friends, I believe this is one of the reasons, not all of them, but one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul would later describe the gospel as a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness for the Gentiles. You, you can't live a story in which you don't have a part. Or to use the verbs that James is using there in verse 22. You can't, this is poor grammar, I get it, but you can't do the gospel. You can't do the gospel. Now, you can certainly hear the gospel, but you can't live it out. The gospel isn't something that you just get, if you will, on your own. For as James makes clear, God plants this word like a seed that's in our hearts. And it's a seed that sprouts apart from our doing, but that results in our doing. Hence, James's call for us to humbly accept this word. The faith which God graciously gifts us births new life so that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. In other words, as we've seen together, faith works. And sadly, James knew that there were some in the church who who had heard the gospel, they may have even responded externally, outwardly to all who were watching to the gospel, but their lives didn't resemble the gospel. They were like those ones that he writes who looked at their faces in the mirror and then walking away, they forgot completely what they looked like. For James, the gospel wasn't just this fantastic story that could entertain even the most obdurate of listeners. It was a drama that once experienced transformed the listener. Or to, to stay within our analogy of drama, cast you in a role that now you live out. 
And so here in our text, James makes clear first that in true religion, hearing always leads to doing. But then secondly, doing that doesn't reflect inner control isn't true religion. Let me say that again. Doing that doesn't reflect inner control isn't true religion. Look back with me to verse 26. You notice there, James says it this way. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is useless. Now, don't miss this. I think this is powerful. Despite the conditional nature of this statement, what is clear to every one of us in this room is that James isn't describing the hypothetical here, is he? James isn't describing the hypothetical. He isn't offering conjecture for the purpose of illustration. Rather, he is describing reality. And isn't that a sobering thought? That each one of us can picture the kind of person that James is presenting here? One who considers themselves to be religious? Why do you think that is? What is it about the human condition that lends itself to such self-perception or more accurately, deception. Why would anyone, like we talked about with the kids, why would anyone want to consider themselves to be anything that they in fact aren't? And I believe you've only got a couple options here. One is that you have those who desire to deceive. They desire to deceive. They wittingly sell themselves to be that which they aren't for personal gain. Now, in some instances, to be fair, such gain is self-preserving as in the case, say, of an abused spouse or a child who wants to protect themselves from further abuse and further hurt and harm. But then in other cases, that personal gain is personal aggrandizement, such as you might see with a politician that will tell you whatever you want to hear as long as you'll vote for him, right? I mean, they'll even go as far as to say, I claim I share your faith, brother. I share your faith as long as you'll make you feel better and you'll keep supporting me. And so you have those who desire to deceive on the one hand, but then secondly, you have those who are themselves just plain old deceived. These are people who truly, I believe, sometimes sincerely believe themselves to be that which they're portraying. And in this case, as James is describing it, it's religious. And so it's these latter, the second part, that I believe James is addressing here in verse 26. And here's why. Here's why I would argue this. Remember, James is his readers, those to whom he's writing, are experiencing what? From the very beginning of verse chapter 1 and verse 2 or 3. They're experiencing trials, aren't they? And we spent almost a month together examining his exhortation to count these challenges as joy for in them and through the difficulties they were experiencing, God was fashioning them more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So since the hardships are at the heart of James's readers' Christian experience, they're normative for their Christian life. I don't think that the, these now that he's referencing were intentionally deceiving themselves or any others for that matter. For that would suggest that, that they wanted to suffer, to experience that which all of those around them were experiencing. And that simply goes against all we know about human nature. No one willingly wants to suffer if they in fact aren't what they're suggesting that they are. And so I believe these guys are genuinely deceived. They believed that they were religious. So this ought make us pause and might cause some concern because the question that necessarily rises to the fore is, well, what might then lead such a person to such a position? How could come, someone come to consider themselves to be 
so religious? And I believe the answer is reflected by the term that James employs there in our text, which is rendered religion. Let me explain. In the language of the New Testament, that word that was used there, religion, was one that was, was used to denote the reverencing and the worshiping of gods, little g, the, the pantheon, the pagan pantheon, if you will, of the Greeks. And specifically, as James is using it here, it's describing the acts outwardly engaged in for such worship, like prayer or, or bowing down before idols, of, of participating in temple events, offering sacrifices, giving to help the poor, benevolence, singing in the choir, if we were to contemporize this, serving in the kitchen, keen on helping those in the community. Yet, if, as James just stated, his readers are to be doers, not only hearers, wouldn't all this doing, we might think, wouldn't all this doing be a good thing? And the answer in the context of our text is obviously no, and we'll explain why in just a moment, but I want us to understand in this moment why someone might think that such activity was quote-unquote religious. And so, why is this then not a good thing? And I believe the answer is found back in that one little word that we spent so much time earlier to define. Verse 22, that word, word, meaning gospel. And friends, when we or someone understands or rather misunderstands the gospel, they're going to evidence that misunderstanding in only one of two ways. Either you'll hold that true religion is consistent of nothing more than hearing or you'll isolate it to simply doing. Now, if you hold to the former misunderstanding, as we've seen, then your life is going to be one that's marked by a total lack of concern most often for your actions. You know, how we live, it matters not in the least. Why? Because we've been saved by grace, grace alone. And the necessity that follows of corporate worship, of evangelism, of continuing discipleship, well, these are just considered optional, if, if considered at all. And so you'll hear folks who feel this way making all manner of excuses for their lack of adherence to the practices that we see in Scripture declared to be essential for spiritual flourishing, life, vitality. And then on the other end of the spectrum are those that would feverishly engage in the doing. And I say feverishly because for these, the doing is the means by which we merit all that God has promised. This is how we come to deserve in our minds. And such a, a misunderstanding of the gospel is reflected by constant anxiety felt over our eternal security, which also might be revealed by hypersensitivity in the roles of service that we fill and envy of others then when they share those responsibilities that, that we've always had. These, these folks are often quick to judge others when they fail and, and very quick to make excuses for, them own, for their own failures when they fail to participate because in their minds, involvement leads to life. It merits life. And it, if nothing else, it obligates God to be on my behalf. And so right before I face a big issue, I'm going to go out there and do something for God so that God has to then do for me, Right? And clearly, both of these perspectives marked James's readers. But in light of the latter, of those the doing, he reminds them, you doers, how do we evaluate whether this doing is right or this doing is wrong? He says, if you can't keep a tight rein on your tongue, all this doing is worthless. There's your thermometer. If you can't keep a tight rein on your tongue. For James, the tongue was a place to turn to shed light on this misunderstanding. Because as he describes it, if you get into chapter 3, it's like a, it's like a wild animal. In, in chapter 3, specifically, he compares it to a rudder of a ship or to a spark that just sets a forest ablaze. No man, he writes, can tame the tongue. Verse 8, it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. So, so 
if James sees the tongue as beyond human control, how does this reflect on his warning to those so-called religious people? And church, it's here. It's right here that I believe we get to the dynamic of true religion. The dynamic of the external, internal dynamic of what is true religion. For What James is making clear here is that true religion is a gift from God. It's not of works, as Paul says, so nobody can boast. For in true religion, God plants his word in our hearts by his grace. And then this word sprouts and it grows and it produces fruit such as love and joy and peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the very thing then that James calls for here regarding the tongue, self-control. In other words, the gospel brings about the very thing that it requires. The patristic theologian Augustine expressed this reality in these words. I love these words. Beautiful. Grant what you command, O God, and command what you will. Grant what you command, and command what you will. God enables. He enables. The gospel brings us to life. It opens our eyes to God's truth, inscribing his word upon our hearts and enlivening our spirits to his commands. And our response, then, to this work of God is obedience. Hence, faith works. And friends, this, this is the beauty of life in Christ. What God wills, he enables, as God's people hear the gospel, his spirit empowers us to action, to the performance of the good works, which he's prepared, as Paul says, in advance for us to do. And as, God, as God's people go about these works, his spirit continues to transform our hearts, revealing this inner control that can only come from God. So the obedience that God demands, he grants by his spirit. That's grace. And the faith that he demands, he gifts through his heard word, the gospel. This is grace. So all true religion is a religion of grace. There's no grace and. There's just grace. And so we've seen together that in true religion, hearing always leads to doing. And that any doing which doesn't reflect inner control isn't true religion. So if we were to summarize, true religion involves outward action, and inner control. And this is our third point. True religion involves outward action and inner control. And, and, and I realize that this third point is merely a restatement of the prior two. Where in the first one, we emphasize the role of the gospel in leading us to action. In the second, we, we emphasize the necessity of the gospel in transformation. Here I want us to focus on James's emphasis. See his emphasis, if you will, on the response, our response to the gospel's working. And that response is of obedience. So look back with me to verse 27. Verse 27. So having just told us what true religion isn't twice, James now declares, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless or faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Here, James is making clear that the religion that God deems acceptable, and so the practices, if you will, that are in harmony with his divine standards, it's only God's standards that matter, from his word, his divine standards are twofold. It reflects both a social as well as a personal ethic. 
So two perspectives. There's a social and a personal ethic. Socially, true religion is to be concerned with loving the least. And in this case, James gives us simply two examples, orphans and widows. And scholars are agreed that in this listing, James wasn't attempting to limit Christian social concern to these two groups, for as we know that there are, there are a host of elements today that, that, that would fall into James's, or rather Jesus's category of loving the least, not merely the two that are listed. And these two that James gives us are simply a reflection or a representative of the two most neediest classes in ancient society, and so rightly would have fallen under Christ's command to love them. A Protestant theologian of the, of the 17th and 16th century explained it in this way. He said, James doesn't define generally what religion is in this verse. Rather, he reminds us that religion without these things he mentions is nothing. So if we're not doing these, then we don't have true religion. These don't con constitute true religion in its entirety. They're just simply, if not present, it's not true religion. And friends, the point is for us as Christians who've heard the gospel, who've been transformed by the gospel, we must love with the gospel. And then this means that we will take care of the least. So widows, uh, orphans, sex slaves, immigrants, refugees, we, we will love them not so as to change their status, but so that they might come to know the gospel. For if all we do, do is provide relief while this, of their, from their physical suffering, while this is noble, it's only going to be a matter of time, as we know, before they experience suffering again. Jesus told his disciples, you'll always have the poor with you. We can't eliminate social suffering, friends, unless we address spiritual suffering. We can't eliminate social suffering unless we get to the root, which is spiritual suffering. So James addresses it in this way. He says that that doesn't say, or let me, let me provide a, a caveat there. So with that said, that our goal is to address spiritual suffering. This doesn't mean that we get to address sex trafficking, if you will, by simply going out and passing out gospel tracts or, or the needs of orphans by hosting information days. There is far more that we need to do. There are some very practical and, and gospel-oriented ministries who are engaging in these very things with whom we ought to be, to, be, to be partnered and we should be partnering with them. But before we look outside the walls of our church, I believe we need to make sure that we're taking care of those who are within the walls of our church. And so to this point, church, we, we need to be mindful of those who within our body fall into these, these two specific categories, just as a start. Orphans and widows. God's called us to love them rightly. And so James gives us a social ethic. True religion reflects a social ethic, an outward action that's marked by obedience to Christ's command, but he also provides us with a personal ethic. In James's words, we're to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And I think this reflects a call to moral purity, to avoiding thinking and acting in accordance with the value systems of the society in which we live. In Jesus's prayer for his disciples, right before his crucifixion, he prayed these words, not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Because we live in a decadent culture, don't we, church? one that is fast decaying. And due to the, our conflation of Judeo-Christian heritage along with our political and economic persuasions, most in our nation today view God as this impersonal force, this, this deistic idea who's out there, set all things in motion for his purpose of simply providing everyone with personal happiness. And this warped worldview is being taught in our schools. It's being channeled through the media. It's even being touted from the White House, the God our nation names as being under, isn't the God 
of the Bible, whose son is Jesus, but rather some nebulous deity who just wants everybody to get along. You know, for this reason, I believe there are scores of, of Christians in our nation sitting in pews in our churches who reflect the very attitudes that James is warning against. The hearing that he states leads to action like gospel conviction of sin, actions to take into repent to restore relationships with others, they don't happen. Yet we cry out for the importance of community service, of impacting our local school systems. The religion that God accepts is marked by moral purity, by a separating of ourselves from the sin that so easily entangles and then a running of the race that God has marked out for us. And friends, this, this race, this running cannot be done in isolation, cannot be done alone. I mean, we're not to, this moral purity that we're called to exhibit isn't found by cutting ourselves off from culture, cloistering ourselves in, in monasteries, so to speak, or even of making these long lists of, of entities that we're going to boycott. That's, that's not the gospel. The religion that God accepts is a gospel religion that is reflected by a spirit birth dependence upon God for everything, demonstrated by our obedience to God, all of which is directed by the word of God. Friends, we can't save ourselves by saving others. That's not how it works. We can't keep ourselves from sin in our own strength. The trap of false religion, of man-made Man-made systems is the empowering of the self. And it feeds our pride. It fuels then our efforts to merit something that will forever be beyond our reach. The gospel destroys hubris and the self as it displays God's great love for a fallen creation, though made in his image, had rejected his glory. There's nothing good in me but that which God brings and provides for us. And in this story, God has given us, by his grace, a role. He's cast us in the story. And as he grafts us in, to use Jesus' words, we, we hope and pray that each of us in this room has their part and is living in and through the strength that Christ provides. And I hope that you know your part. I hope that you're playing your part. As we talked about with RAs on, on Saturday morning in our Bible study, this picture of the church that each and every one of us belongs to who've come by, gra by God's grace through faith to believe. And we each have a part essential to the body, strength to its flourishing. Not a one of us doesn't. Are we living it out? We can be confident that we are when we recognize that the grace that God has given us fulfills and enables us to fulfill all those responsibilities that we see reflected. But this morning, if you're not, and we're going to stand and sing a song here in just a moment. Take my life, lead me, Lord. And if you're not confident, if you haven't found the answer to your search for meaning, if your life's story has no end, or doesn't seem that there's no narrative, no threads to make sense of all that's around you, it's just like stills. And there's nothing giving you any sense of satisfaction. Everything you've attempted just seems to end in, in frustration. And you go back to the drawing board to try to figure out where, where do I fit? Every role I filled has se seemed in the moment great. But just moments later, seems like days later, there's just a frustration that I find once again. Let me encourage you. Find me afterwards. Talk to someone sitting beside you who seems to exhibit the joy that you don't have. Let's not pretend. True religion that God our Father accepts 
is one in which we see peace, which passes all understanding, where it's faith constantly evidencing itself through obedience to the Word of God. I hope you found your place in God's story. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are good. Your gospel has given us purpose. It's given us life itself as you've drawn us back into yourself. Lord, we don't deserve this. There's nothing we did to merit this work of grace. And yet, Father, in a world that we live, in the perspective that we've been taught, we feel as if we are the center of all things and that it's on us. The onus is on us to find significance and satisfaction. And if we can get what we don't have, achieve what we've not yet achieved, then we'll get it. Then we'll find that which we don't have. And we really don't know what that is. We attempt to articulate it in different ways, but no matter what it is that we believe we've come to know, inevitably, it leaves us empty. Because the story in which we're living has no purpose unless Christ is there. Father, that's the beauty of your gospel is that you draw us back into your story, which is real, true, evidenced all around us. And yet despite its presence woven in and through creation, we rejected it. So we can't claim responsibility for finding our way back to it. But you being a God of love sent your son, opened our eyes by your grace and made it possible for us to once again live in a relationship with you. Father, this is the beauty of your gospel story. I praise you for allowing many in this room to be a part of that story and so beautifully pictured, evidenced by the fruit that is coming out, being made. Lord, would you grow us more and more into the image of your Son? Father, for someone this morning who hasn't found their place in your story, doesn't even know there was a story, wouldn't have been able to articulate the fact that they're living out a story, even though it's frustrating. God, maybe this morning I pray, by your grace, through your word, you've opened a heart's eyes. Lord, would you be glorified? Would you glorify yourself by drawing someone to yourself this morning? Lord, we would pray these things for you, for it's all about you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.